Welcome to Talking Kotlin. And on this episode, I'm sitting down with Eric Meyer talking about gradient descents. Hi, Eric, and welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Welcome, everybody. So how are things with you? Pretty good. Yeah. Having fun. Having yeah. fun. Yeah, and uh, you were uh, actually talking about having fun uh, a few months ago at uh, KotlinConf in Copenhagen, where we held it in December, where it was kind of cold and everyone was complaining about how cold it was and dark and gloomy. Uh, but you were talking about, uh, you said, you know, I'm here in my favorite city, talking about my favorite language, about something awesome that apparently you've been working on, which I'm going to read the title out because it's it's long to remember, Gradient Descent, the Ultimate op Optimizer. And there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so how long have you been working on this thing that we'll dive into in a moment? Oh, I've been working on that on and off for, I would say, about two years. Um, for me, it's a little bit of a hobby project where I'm coding this up in the weekend. Um, and then it was so much fun and had so much potential that I started um, a team around it. But on the side, I keep kind of like, you know, working on it myself. Basically, what I'm trying to do is try to write a baby deep learning framework um, where everything is kind of explained in great detail. I think a lot of the deep learning frameworks try to show like complicated examples. They gloss over a lot of design decisions. And I'm trying to explain everything as if, like, as if I'm a six-year-old and showing everything using concrete code examples. And, so, and implementing everything really from scratch. And I love that because you could treat me as a six-year-old because, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest kid <laughs> in the room. And uh, so explaining things to me like a six-year-old is really, really useful. And one of the things, I mean, I watched your talk um, and I, I would love to say that I completely and utterly understood absolutely everything of it. I was, I was more or less good until you started to put some of those longer formulas on the screen. Uh, right about the 35-minute mark or so. Uh, but up to then, I was mostly understanding it. And one of the things that I loved about your talk, by the way, which is really, really great, and I, and I recommend that everyone watches it, was how you approached the idea and how you approached it with a similar concept that many of us are familiar with, which was uh, test-driven design, right? I think that this was like a really, really good, uh, approach. So can you kind of like explain that a little bit to the audience? Like why did you pick this idea of test-driven design to to understand, you know, explain the concept of gradient descents? Of course, yeah. So here's the thing. If you look at how you write code using uh, test-driven design, you start with a function that's kind of full of bugs. You don't really know what you're writing and you have a bunch of examples, tests, and what you're doing is like you're trying to improve your function to pass more tests. So every time you give it a test, you get like by hand, you improve your function to make it pass these tests. If you look at what gradient descent does, it starts with a crappy function that's full of bugs. And then you feed it training data. And by doing backpropagation, you adjust the parameters of that function to pass the test to make the like output that the function produce match the expected output. So really it's very similar to test-driven development, except that instead of a human adjusting the function based on the test outputs, 
you have a mechanical procedure to do that. But in principle, it's exactly the same. You're starting with a crappy function and you have a lot of training data or tests and you use that to drive the process to make that function get like, you know, more correct. Okay. So in, in tester and development, I, I start with, I mean, you know, you want to call it design or whatever, but I'm basically starting with use cases, which is the data. And then from that, I'm driving kind of the, the function that I want to implement. And so you would say that the same applies here, right? You're trying to get that, that function uh, based on input data. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's, it's exactly like conceptually, it's exactly the same thing. And, and I think that this is really easy for many people to understand because, you know, people are more or less familiar with the concept of test-driven development. Now, the next question comes is why, why a gradient descent? Like for people that aren't familiar with this, what, what exactly is that? Yeah, so this is one of the things um, in machine learning, but I think it applies to programming in general. Often you hear terms that you're not familiar with. If you think about um, programming, for example, you might hear like generics or polymorphism or all kinds of terms that you don't understand and that sound complicated. But then when you see it in reality, it's actually not that complicated. If you hear gradient descent, you think, oh, wow, that sounds really complicated, but it's it's not that complicated. As I showed in my talk, I really, or I, like you really don't need anything more than um, middle school math. If you want to find the minimum or maximum of a function, you use the derivative to find that. Like if the derivative is zero, that's when the function has a minimum or a maximum. Taking the analogy um, or going back to the analogy of test-driven development, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to look at the output of the function and the expected um, output, and we're trying to minimize that distance. So that's called the loss function. So what we're trying to find is we're trying to find the minimum of the loss function because that's the uh, where the output and the um, expected output are the same because then the loss is zero. Um, and gradient descent is just another way of um, finding that minimum um, in an automatic way. So what you're doing is if you're kind of like, you know, like a little bit away from the minimum, then you can kind of like adjust the parameters to get kind of like, you know, move towards the minimum. So it's a, it's a way to search um, the value for which you know, your function reaches a minimum. And it uses two things. It uses differentiation because you, you need to take uh, the derivative of your function. And that's where we use automatic differentiation. And then the gradient descent is really the kind of like updating the values to kind of like, you know, to make your function um, the result closer to that minimum. And this is used in, you. I mean, you started the, the topic in terms of I wanted to explain deep learning to a six-year-old. Uh, this is used in deep learning, I assume. Yes. This is how all the training in deep learning works. Because it's essentially trying to, like minimizing that loss function is, is where we, you know, in a higher level talk about how accurate it is in detecting pictures or words or things like that, right? Exactly. Okay. And again, like to go back to the idea of test-driven development, 
there the loss function is like you know your test um, should pass or the, the output of your function should be the same as the output that the test expects. Um, and so your loss function is to make sure that your function computes the same output as the test case. Right, and as you would increase the different types of inputs, always making sure that 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 the the number of like reds is minimum, right? It's it's always tending exactly. towards green. Yes, exactly. You can say like you know what gradient descent does. It, it allows you to tweak your program to minimize the number of reds. Absolutely, that's kind of like you know a really good way to um, explain it. Yeah. So now, if I'm like your average developer which I am and you know nowadays like if you look left and right everyone is talking about uh machine learning as a service essentially like you know you look at every cloud provider they're like oh yeah you want to do you want to you know get some AI into your application use our services why were you pursuing this path of trying to this path of trying to explain to people deep learning was it just like would I as a developer be using something like this? today unless i'm directly involved with the development of a service of of machine learning or would i be using something like more abstract or or high level so to speak yeah so here's the thing right like if you're using um say a, a gui um framework that also has like lots of layers of implementation and abstraction and you can just use it to write your application um and in many cases, you don't really need to understand how it works under the covers. But if you really are interested how it works, then you might say, oh, maybe I'm implementing a new GUI uh, framework completely from scratch, from like, you know, um, painting bits on the screen or pixels on the screen. Or if you think about the service, a lot of us use databases. We don't need to know how database databases work under the covers of course you need to know a little bit like you know how they behave but if you're interested in databases you can just for fun implement a toy uh, database to really understand how that thing works and that's the same thing what i do here of course that's the beauty of software where other people build frameworks for us such that we don't have to build everything from scratch um, and we can use, we can stand on the shoulders of others. But in order to really understand and for curiosity, I really like to build things from scratch because only then I feel that I deeply understand what I'm using. And of course, there's not enough time in the world to do this for everything. But for certain things, I really enjoy just building it from scratch to explain to myself and to others how this works. Yeah, and I think that that's a very good point, and it's a and it's a point that I very much agree with, right? Because a lot of times, the fact that you're using a higher th level service doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't, or or if it's not a value to understand how things work under the covers, because that's always going to provide you with more value, and and understanding the basics of things is always going to be of of value in your in your career, right? I mean, you know, if I look back at my uh, topics that I uh, that I was studying in, in computer science, those days I would say I'm not going to use anything of this directly in the real world, right? But now I see of how much value it is to know the core concept uh, concepts and the basics. Yeah, absolutely. And let me give you another example in the context of Kotlin. Um, 
if you use a programming language that has a compiler, type checker, code generator, and then the virtual machine has a garbage collector. And it's a very, very complicated piece of machinery. And if you're a language user, sometimes you say, oh, why can't we do this, right? Because you have some idea of a language feature or something that you want. If you understand a little bit more how type checkers and compilers work, then you can reason about like, you know, what features are feasible or not, or you can understand better how certain um, properties of the language kind of came about because you say, ah, oh, okay, that's why that behaves like this because it's implemented in this or that way. But that doesn't mean that like, you know, everybody has to go and write a compiler, but I think if you're interested, very much interested in programming languages, then of course I would say go and implement a toy compiler. Um, or another way, what you can also do is study a real one. But I find it more um, interesting to get like, you know, study a model. Like it's like I'm really building a model of something more complicated because that allows you to get like, you know, like everybody knows that if you write real production code, it always gets more complicated because you have to deal with edge cases, exceptions, etc. Et Where if you build a model, you can keep it clean and focus on the essence. Yeah. Um, and it also opens up so many doors, like you say, you know, I mean, like, for example, many people aren't familiar with let's let's take Kotlin as an example, right? They're not familiar with the plugin architecture of Kotlin. Uh, and it's not something that everyone really you know, is demanded to be familiar with. But certainly, if you understand a little bit how that works, you start to see how many other doors that it could open for you uh, as a language, right? And and the potential that it could have. Yep, absolutely. And so I think it's really important for people to get like, you know, play around with these things. So don't be afraid, just start hacking and play with these things, even if this is a toy thing, because building toys is already very educational. Um, and I don't pretend that what I'm building here is like production quality, but that's also not the intent. It's really for education and to try to extract the essence and to show that to others as well, that, you know, here's the essence and this is like, you know, how it works under the covers. And then you can, with peace of mind, you can use the more complete frameworks. So would you say that one of your goals is also to basically demystify machine learning and deep learning? Absolutely. I think this is what can happen when you're using, like it's whatever is the saying, right? Like, you know, any advanced piece of technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. And if we see things as magic, I don't think that's the right thing to do. So yes, trying to demystify things by showing that underneath this complicated looking um, giant framework is something that's essentially pretty simple, I think is very valuable. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And it also, you know, bringing back this whole, I mean, this is a whole other topic of uh, is math something that is essential for software developers to know and understand and, and, and be, uh, you know, uh, not not talentable, but you know, proficient in uh, what? What are, what are your feelings around this? I think, um, strangely enough, I sometimes feel that software developers are afraid of math, 
uh, which I think is a pity because what we're doing is really uh, mad. If you um, look at the Curry-Howard isomorphism, um, this sounds like, a, again, another complicated thing, but there the idea is that a type is a proposition and a program is a proof. So if we're writing a program, and if you abstract a little bit from that, if we're writing a program, what we're really doing is we're writing a proof, a proof that you can kind of like, you know, um, implement a certain function, um, a certain uh, proposition that you can prove a certain proposition. And so if you look at programs and you compare them to proofs, we are writing very complicated proofs. We're writing very complicated mental um, constructions. and. In some sense, that is math, right? Math is not only numbers or calculus or logic. Math for me is anything that deals with formalism and programs are formalisms. It's all abstract. We're not building things from wood and steel. No, we're building things from concepts. We're gluing together ideas. And so I would say like, for me, programming is math. Um, it's Maybe different from the math that you learn at school, but I don't think there's again conceptually much difference because we're we're working at a very high level of abstraction, um, and in in that sense we're trying to do the same thing. What is often intimidating about math is that mathematicians, because they don't, well, traditionally now these days it's different. But traditionally, they don't use computers. So a lot of the notation or the, their programming language is optimized for pen and paper and for um, shortness. So they use a lot of overloading, a lot of puns. They're not very precise because they don't have a type checker. And if you don't have a type checker, you can kind of like cheat a little bit to make things more concise. Um, but really, if you look at most mathematics, you can look at that as programs written in a, in a weird programming language where people are trying to get like write code in a very similar way that we do. It's just that programming language that looks strange to us, but it's no different than if you're a Kotlin programmer and you look at a piece of Fortran and you say, oh, I don't understand that. That doesn't mean that programming is difficult. It's just that you don't understand that language. but in some sense, the Fortran programmer is doing the same thing mentally as the Kotlin programmer. And so I believe that a programmer is very similar in the way they work as a mathematician. Yeah. And I guess also, I mean, when you talk about maths, a lot of the concepts that you study uh, when you're in school or high school is is sometimes feels abstract, right? And and programming is basically, you could say, an, a, a, an application of that abstraction, right? It, it's, an implement, it's, it's an example of that abstraction, right? Like something that you can actually implement on top of the concepts that you're learning, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, now, let me say it like this. I would challenge that a little bit. Uh, if you think about um, programs... Some programs are more, I would say, more concrete than others. Say you're building a, um, an app uh, that has a GUI and everything. 
that feels very concrete, right? You can kind of like interact with it, you can click on it and it will do something. But if you're building a library, say a collection library with lists and so on, that's way more abstract, right? You're not, these are not kind of complete applications. These are like building blocks that other people can use. And it's the same thing, I think, with math. Um, if you look at maybe physics, where you're kind of like modeling, like a ball falling from, you know, from a distance or other things, that's very concrete because you can relate that to nature. But it uses building blocks um, or frameworks uh, like calculus or linear algebra that by themselves look more abstract. So I think even for programming, if you say it's abstract or more concrete, I still think that you have the same analogy there. There's parts of programming that are more concrete, but they always build on parts of programming that are way more abstract. Now, talking about Kotlin a little bit, why Kotlin? Like, why? I mean, you know, you have been involved in many languages, and, and I want to ask you some things around those uh, a little bit later, but why Kotlin for this? Yeah, um, there are um, several reasons for that. One of them is that I think um, I like statically typed languages, and for not because of safety or, or something, but because I'm lazy. When I see a function, I want to look at the type and get an idea what this function does, such that I don't have to read the implementation of the function to understand it. Um, and with the statically typed language, that's what you get, right? I can look at the class definition or function signature and I can say, okay, I, I see what the inputs and the outputs are. So I can suspend my disbelief um, of what it does and I can kind of use it. If the type is generic, then I'm even more certain what this function does. Um, like if I see the signature for map, I, you kind of know more or less already what the implementation is. So that's why I like statically, statically typed languages. Um, then the other thing that's important for me is that there's um, a lot of libraries that I can use. We talked about this already. You, you cannot build everything from scratch. Um, I think in the JVM ecosystem, there is a lot of like libraries available. Um, and then the third thing is, I think the, and this sounds weird because, or I don't think it sounds weird, but the syntax of a language I think is also important. I like to get like, you know, write code that looks elegant and that is concise where there's not a lot of noise. Um, I came originally like from Haskell and Haskell is extremely terse and extremely elegant. And so I like languages where the code looks beautiful. And I think Kotlin has everything. So it has um, static types. It lives in the uh, JVM ecosystem. Now with Kotlin native, it even lives in a wider ecosystem and with Kotlin JS. Um, and Kotlin code looks in general, really nice. It's very concise. The syntax is like never in your way. Um, so yes, it has all the features of a programming language that I crave. 
you know, I always joke that when I introduce Kotlin to people, it depends on the crowd, right? If it's functional programmers, I say, you know, Kotlin is a functional programming language with object-oriented constructs. And, and if it's object-oriented programmers, I say the reverse. Uh, because it, there is kind of a mishmash of both, right? I mean, you can, you can write Kotlin code that essentially you don't even have to declare any classes. Where, where do you sit on that? Are you, are you using it mostly as an object-oriented programming language or more as a functional one? That's a good question. Um, and here, again, I think that there's not that much difference between um, object-oriented languages and functional languages. And you see that in some sense already how uh, functions are implemented in Kotlin, but it's very similar how they're implemented in C-sharp or in um, Java or in Scala. Um, a function is just a special object that has a magic method, um, you know, maybe it's called invoke or apply, uh, that, you know, as syntactic sugar, you don't have to write. Um, and it's, a, it's an object that um, has this special properties. Uh, another way to say that is like an, an, um, a, a function is an object with one method, um, and an object is a closure with multiple methods. So it's it, they're really kind of like you know more similar than you think, and that's I think why this combination of functional and object-oriented programming works so well, because they're really two sides of the same coin. And the one thing, and I, I, I want to keep this orthogonal, is that it's not a pure functional language. Um, and so if you want to have purity then um, that's a kind of like a different thing. So if you want to have a pure language, I don't think that mixes very well with um, imperative programming. And But then you're immediately in the Haskell world where you have purity, laziness. Um, and I think that's, that's a very different world. But if you're staying in the world of um, eager evaluation and... Um, Impurity, I think object orientation and the functional style uh, work very well together. You know, you talked about earlier concepts that are in maths that, that are alien to people in programming. And also you mentioned that, for example, when you look at a, a function that says map, you know more or less what it does. One of the things that I've encountered when I talk about some uh, higher order functions or, or certain ways of, of writing code in, in quote unquote a more functional way is a pushback from people in that, well, this is too much, you know, like it, 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 there feels like there's, there's this line where you say, I can use map, I can use filter, I can use, uh, even push me a little bit, I can use flat map. But if you introduce me to the concept of fold, that's just way too much. Now, I, I, it's awesome that, you're, that I have the opportunity to ask you this on, on the podcast because you were involved in Link, right, in, in, with C Sharp. And I think it was you that actually said like, I, we introduce link to we introduce functional programming to C sharp without telling C sharp developers that we were doing it. It was you, right? Yep. Yeah. And and is is this 
is this kind of from the same thing? Like, have you felt that developers, to a certain extent, they're comfortable, and then you push you push a little bit more, and it's just like too much. Do you, do you see what I'm so saying? I, I I totally see what you're saying, and it's it's true even for myself. Um, sometimes, um, if you're trying to kind of write code that's too dense, um, then it becomes unreadable. Um, on the other hand, if you write code that's not very dense, it becomes unwieldy. So it's like everything in life, it's about balance, right? So what I don't like is people that can, like go into the extreme. So if you want to write everything using higher order functions, and write code that's got like super, super concise. Now, in order to understand what the code does, you have to kind of unpack it in your mind. Um, and that takes time. Um, but if your code is very, very concrete and very, very verbose, now you have to do the same thing. So now in your mind, you have to kind of like introduce abbreviations and and see it patterns and say oh like you know i see the same pattern every time again that's what it's doing so you're using abbreviations so really i think the truth is somewhere in the middle and um and that's a, a matter of kind of like you know taste that you have to develop and sometimes using a fault might be the right thing um other times you know you might want to write it using a loop explicitly and some stateful variable. And, and if you look at my code, I have like, you know, switch between um, that um, all the time myself. So you're, you're absolutely okay with that. I mean, I mean, generally I am as well, but there are purists uh, that would say, no, you know, you should, you should, you should always stick to one approach. Because it like uh, there, there's a camp of people that will say that if if you do not try and uh, stick to the approach of maybe trying to be, you know, everything uh, with functions and no side effects, etc., you're losing all of the benefits that functional programming would provide you. All right, so let me give you an example. Right, like in my um, little toy library, um, I, I need to. Ha I have a little. Um, like, you know, set of functions to deal with vectors or arrays or whatever, right? And so what I need to do is I need to take um, two arrays and I need to add the elements like pointwise, right? So I just need to get like zip them together. Um, now that's, and I need the same thing with um, subtraction. So now I can write two loops that got like go over these two arrays, or I can write a single function, uh, zip, that does the same thing. Um, or I can use the standard library function zip that does that for you. So this is the kind of thing, it's like these higher order functions, they capture patterns that people use a lot. And if you're using, like if you're only using this thing once in your program, then it's, probably fine to just write it explicitly. But if you are using it over and over again, then it means that this becomes now a relevant um, concept, and then you can abstract it um, away in a higher order function. And I think your code becomes clearer. Yeah. Because now you can, like you have you introduce, you say like, 
this kind of manipulation is important because I'm doing it a lot. So I'm giving it a special name and it allows me to abbreviate my code. Yeah. Yeah. I also remember that the, when Link was introduced to C Sharp, we, at, with ReSharper, we had this quick action that basically would take any kind of, you know, iterative uh, imperative code or loops and stuff like that and just convert it to Link um, to try and make it more readable and more concise. And then after about a year or two, we used started to get feedback that, you know, this Link has become too complicated. And we had to actually implement another feature that would take uh, a link query and revert it back, which wasn't the control Z. Uh, but it it goes back to what you're saying, right? It's just, just to find that balance that between readable, conciseness, terseness. And and I I totally remember uh, those features. And I I have to say I use them in both directions. Um, and it's that's the way, like you know, people refactor their code all the time. So think about using higher order functions as refactoring your code. It's kind of it can clean up your code, but it shouldn't be the goal, right? It shouldn't yeah. be the goal, like you know, look how cool I am because I'm using all these higher order functions. Um, but on the other hand, you should also shouldn't say like if anybody uses higher order functions, that's bad code. It's it's about that balance. Yeah. So coming back to Kotlin and your, I, I mean, I don't want to call it a framework, right? Because like, what is, what is the state of the project right now? Is it actually a framework or a library that I can download and use to just learn and even maybe incorporate it into my application? Um, so at this point, it's not, a, that's not really the goal. Um, it's really more for my um, own education. Um, and I, I give talks with it. I think um, at some point I might kind of like release it, um, but that re would require kind of like a lot more work and a lot more time than I have, um, because then I need to document it I, and so on. Um, so what I'm really using it for is as a driver to get kind of like you know um, uh, write my talks. Um, but that said, like, you know, it's not really that important because my team, we're building a real framework um, in Kotlin. Um, and so that's got like, you know, what, what got like, you know, at some point uh, will be got like released. So my stuff is really just got like baby stuff that I use for my own education and for my talks. Uh, but it's not something that I'm intending to release. That's why I leave this to like professional developers um, and like, you know, where we can actually build something that's a, that's an actual usable framework. Okay. And do you want to cover a little bit what your team is building? Yes. I, I've talked a, a little bit about this in, in my talk. So what we're building is we're building a, a differentiable uh, language um, in Kotlin. Um, that's, um, so what it's trying to do is it's trying to make um, every function uh, differentiable um, such that you can get, like, you know, I think differentiability is useful beyond deep learning, right? Because deep learning, as I said, like is one um, application where we're trying to um, find, um, trying to update parameters to minimize a loss function. 
but there's many other ways in our um, applications in programming where you have a similar situation where there are some values in your code where you don't know what um, there um, some some variables in your code where you don't know what the optimal values are, and if you can backpropagate through your code and your code is differentiable, now you can learn the values of those parameters. And and there's many like you know interesting examples where um, you use um, say you have a, a, a physics engine and you're trying to get like you know um, make that physics engine do something. Um, and in order to do that, you need to get, like set some parameters, but you know, don't know the values. And if you have some training data, you can backpropagate and differentiate through that whole simulation, then you can do a very interesting thing. So I think this whole notion of differentiable programming um, transcends beyond deep learning. And it's anywhere where you want to learn parameters um, of a function. And that function doesn't have to be layers of neurons. In terms of the usage of Kotlin, I mean, you've talked about the conciseness, you've talked about that uh, you like statically typed and the interoperability and, and the usages of libraries. Are you making specific usages of the language features itself? And, and I often ask this, for example, uh, in terms of DSLs, for instance, like you know, one of the big things that we promote about Kotlin is the uses of D DSLs. The, is there an area where you feel like this could provide value? Um. So yeah, so in some sense, like a lot of frameworks are in in some sense DSLs, right? And I do think that the um, Kotlin has a lot of like nice. Um, syntax that allows you to get like you know make these things um, look more concise. Uh, for example, the way you know the different notations for um, uh, functions where you can um, kind of build these like things that look like your own control structures. Um, what I'm not using that much is those features where you know you're you're building um, using this kind of, like the DSLs to build object literals like you know um, HTML documents and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I do use like most of the features of Kotlin. Um, um, yes, very extensively. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of like DSLs, I think that's a very special kind of DSLs where you're trying to build something that's more declarative, right? Where, where you're trying to build a data structure and you want to get like have a nice syntax for that. Yeah. Um, that's not the kind of kind of application that that I use here. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is, I mean, looking, it's it's mostly around math symbols, et cetera. And, and one question I was going to ask you is like, is there anything lacking in the language that you would really want? Or like, I don't know, you know, in Scala, for example, you can take any any symbol and, and define it as operator. Is that something you like or don't like or anything else that you feel is missing in the language? Yeah, with these things, as I said in the beginning, it's always a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. Because you, you can have wishes, but then if you know a little bit how uh, languages are implemented, a lot of these things add a lot of complexity. So, for example, one of the things that I used quite a bit in C-sharp 
was implicit convergence. Um, but then when you read the C-sharp spec and the same thing in Scala, um, these implicit conversions are pretty complicated. So then the question is like, you know, oh, instead of writing um, a little bit more code versus like adding a lot of complexity to the language, is that a good trade-off? And I do think that Kotlin um, has done an amazing job of kind of keeping the language simple, right? You can, it's very easy to add new features, but then the language becomes more complicated. Um, and harder so I think to you have tool. To be, uh, yeah, harder to tool. So I think you have to be very careful um, about that. Um, so yeah, I think there's not much that I can, like, you know, um, maybe I would say there's, um, if you look at, um, if, say you print a list in Kotlin, um, and I have that right here on my screen here, it prints it out with square brackets and got like, you know, the elements of the list. But then when you want to write a list, you have to write list of, and then you open paren. And I kind of like when, like, you know, when I print something, it looks the same as when I kind of like write it. Yeah. And, um, and I, I do think that like having maybe a little bit more lightweight syntax for collections, um, but now you have to get like um, single out certain collections, how you write them, right? So again, that's got like, you know, the, um, the trade-off here. I, I do think that maybe got like, you know, um, if you got like the two-string method on list should be got like, you know, give you the same value as what you write to produce that list as a literal. Um, that would be, maybe it should go the other way around, right? Like don't tempt people to say, oh, like that's how a list looks like, but then in code, I cannot write it like that. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that one of the biggest demanded features uh, is, is has always been collection literals, right? Um, but I, that is actually a good point. Like why didn't you just print it out with, brack uh, with brackets instead of square brackets and not yes. push people to, to think, well, why can't I write the list like that? You know, it's funny because... I, I encountered this thing the other day. I'm, I'm teaching my my third attempt to teach my one of my kids finally programming, and um, he's eight years old. And so I'm teaching him like you know the, the basics of hello world, etc. And I'm like, so here's print line, and then p r a and p r i n t l n. And then I'm like, but now what you can do is like you can ask for your name, and I put you know var name equals read line. And he's like, he's like, you're saying read line and you're saying print line, but one of them is spelled L-I-N-E and one of them is spelled L-N. Why? And I'm like, yep. yeah, never mind. Let's just go play Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and then the, the other thing is that I'm using um, quite some, like, and again, this is just like, you know, um, I, I'm using quite some um, Unicode characters. Um, and what is kind of like interesting there, and this is not a critique of Kotlin, but um, certain characters um, are um, not valid, like, you know, because it's Unicode, right? They, you cannot use them as identifiers um, and others you can. And it's like, you know, and because of Unicode, you kind of hardly know what like you know what the actual rules are, um, 
And there's a gap, like when I ported my, like, or what I, I started some of this in Scala and there different characters got like, you know, were allowed as identifiers then in Kotlin. So that was kind of like interesting. So if you look at my uh, code, for example, um, I used to get like, you know, blackboard bold for real numbers, but for dual numbers, the blackboard bold is not kind of a valid identifier, but the italics version is. So it's got <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> so there's got kind of like, you know, strange things like that, which, which I, I think is probably only me that's got kind of like, you know, um, concerned about that but overall i must say um i'm really amazed how well designed Kotlin is and um how like maybe the only thing where i have to look in the manual is the the uh, syntax for properties because i'm missing some curly braces there it's like it there it feels like a little bit half like you know um python because like you know there's no kind of like you know curly braces around it, but it's like you have to indent it. Well, you don't have to indent it, but it, it looks like like it's like doesn't fit in. If, if there would be some extra curly braces there, um, I think um, and they could be optional. That's a kind of like a little weird thing. And I, I have to look that up in the manual every time I write a property. Um, but that's basically the only thing. Yeah, but I completely agree with you. That, like that's the one thing that always um, trips me up as well. The 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 property declarations. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's been uh, awesome having you on the show, Eric. Really, I mean, I mean, this is for me an honor because I've I've been a big fan of your work for so long, and and for you to take the time to chat with me is is wonderful. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, I. Do want to ask though? I know that you said you're not le- really planning on releasing this or anything, but is there anything anybody could actually play with, even for the for e- educative uh, educational purposes, like be able to see what the work that you're doing beyond the talks that are available? Um, so what I'm actually doing is I'm writing a. Um, it's turning this talk is turning into a book actually. Um, and so, like, I was writing an, an article based on the talk. And then when I looked, it turned into a book it's already. <laughs> it's like 75 pages. <laughs> so um, I'm turning it into a book. And um, so hopefully at some point, like, you know, uh, that book will be released. And then, like, you know, it's uh, there. People will have enough. And there's probably, like, code with the book. I cannot promise this. But that's kind of like what I'm working on in my spare time. Um, okay i, so I very a, much a book look on forward deep to learning that. in Kotlin. yeah yep very much look forward to it awesome that's great having you on the show thanks again for coming all right thank you so much and thank you so much and the whole team for an amazing language um it's like every time i use it i get a big smile on my face that's really wonderful to hear thanks eric all right have a great day you too.